Well, turn, if you would, to the book of Philippians. We are back at it again with the book of Philippians. All right. Can y'all hear me okay? Okay. Now, let's open with a, a word of prayer. We just ask the Lord to bless our time and pray with me that that the Lord would really minister to our hearts and give us the help that we need today. Because I know all of us are coming in uh, to this service with all sorts of different things going on in our lives. And we need a fresh word from God right where we're at. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this privilege and this opportunity to get into the book of Philippians and to get help, to get help from you, to get help from the spirit-breathed words that you inspired and revealed to your apostle, who was once the, the man Saul, a persecutor of the church, an enemy of the gospel, a hater of Christians, trying to stomp out the gospel. And you saved him. You knocked him off his horse. You opened his eyes to the truth of the gospel. And you set him free, just like we sung about. That he saw, and the chains fell off, and he was free. His eyes saw the quickening ray of the glory of the gospel of Christ. And he beheld Jesus for who he truly was. And his life was changed. And you revealed this letter for our benefit to stir our souls in the gospel. And I pray, God, that your spirit would minister to our hearts right now, Lord, that we would get encouragement, that we would get help, that we would get life-giving truth, and that the spirit of God would anoint this word, that you would help me to preach self-forgetfully for the glory of your name and the love of your people and the encouragement and edification of your people. Build us up in faith, Lord. Build us up in truth. Build us up in a gospel vision of living for Christ in this world. And I pray, God, that as we get into the book of Philippians, once again, that we would just be stabbed awake to the glory of Christ. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's been a couple weeks since we got into Philippians, and I thought what we'd do is we're going to take a quick dive and just review how central the gospel is to the Apostle Paul in this first chapter. This gospel that Paul is heralding, that we're gathered around as we meet as a people, this gospel is the main thing for him. It's the main event. It's what his life is about. And if you'll look with me in chapter one, you'll see that he says, I thank God in verse three, in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. He was just on fire with the gospel and his joy in the Philippian church and his love for them and their partnership in the gospel was centered around the gospel. So for Paul, true Christian fellowship and true church is all about the gospel. 
And then he goes on to talk about his imprisonment in verse 7, right? He says, it's right for me to feel this way about you because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Unless we forget, Paul is writing this letter from prison because he was a witness for the gospel. Once an enemy of the gospel, then becomes a Christian, then begins to live preaching the gospel so boldly that it gets him into hot water with the religious authorities and with the Roman authorities. And so he's in a Roman dungeon in a prison cell for the sake of the gospel. And he's making a defense. He's not just in prison quiet like, this is a bummer. He's preaching the gospel. Every guard he's chained to, he's given the gospel. So much so that he says in verse 12, he says, I want you to know, brothers, I want you to know, Philippians, I want you to know, Smithfield, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to the rest of that my imprisonment is for Christ and that most of the brothers has become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment and much more to speak the word without fear. Paul knew that he was in Rome for the glory of the gospel. For the witness of the gospel, he went to prison. And he knew that that was the very purpose of God to bring the gospel into Rome. And he wants to encourage the Philippians with that reality. And Paul is not discouraged even though he's in, Philippi, or he's in Rome and he can't be with the church at Philippi. He tells them, listen, there's some people who are preaching to cause me harm. They're preaching the gospel and they're trying to cause me harm in prison. But I rejoice because the gospel is being proclaimed, even if his character is being maligned. He is that gospel centered, that about the gospel, that in love with the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it so burns within his soul that he cannot help but rejoice even when people with bad motives preach the gospel. Verse 18 says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So you might say that, that Philippians chapter 1 is about the centrality of the gospel and how it creates fellowship among Christians and how it produces evangelism and how it breaks into cities, changes places like Philippi that were once totally pagan. And now they have a church presence because the gospel came out and went into the hearts of people like Lydia and the Philippian jailer as Paul's in jail sharing the gospel. That's the kind of work that Paul is excited about that's happening and it's happening all over again in Rome. And he wants people to be set on fire with a passion for the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, what is this good news? What is this that, that, that Paul's excited about? Why is the gospel so central and so important? Because man is totally lost apart from the gospel. There is no good news in our lives. When we look around in the world, we see the reality of sin and how it's impacted our world. The struggle, the wars, diseases, 
natural disasters, sin in families, sin in governments, sin in communities. And you see it from the smallest child, right? Denying their parents, going into the cookie jar, stealing stuff out of the pantry, doing all sorts of stuff. And they were told no. And they didn't get taught how to do that. They knew it all by themselves. Because sin is something we're all born into. What happened in the garden was a real reality that sin came into the world when Adam and Eve believed the serpent rather than God. Did God really say you shouldn't eat of the tree in the middle of the garden? Satan would say to them, whispering, and they believed the devil's word over the word of God. And they plunged themselves into a fall and they got disconnected from God, disconnected from one another, and disconnected from the world around them. And Paul is entering into all of that and once was at war with Christians. And he was set free. He realized that he was in prison, in a dungeon in his soul. Fast bound in his sin. And then his eyes saw the light. And he was saved. And he had such a powerful experience of the gospel that it changed everything. Now, I, uh, I think about this. And about 20 years ago, I think, um, a movie came out called Saving Private Ryan. You remember that movie? It's all about Private Ryan, who's the last surviving son of a family. And this family has just lost two other sons in battle, and the last son is Private Ryan, and so the army issues a decree that they're going to send out um, a squad of men to go rescue Ryan, bring him home, so that no further loss is going to happen, and discourage. Imagine you being a mom and dad, and you lost two of your sons, and the last one's on the battlefield. So they say, let's go get Ryan, and they send a team of men in there, and they go through a living hell to try to get Ryan. And every last one of them gives their life. And there's this powerful scene at the end of the movie where Tom Hanks, who's the captain of this squad that was sent out, is mortally wounded. And he's just laying there on the bridge. And Ryan is, is, is Private Ryan is just crying, right? Rocking back and forth. Because just a powerful reality that death was imminent and that he might not get out of this alive, is before him. And just in the nick of time, rescue begins to come. And all these men had given their lives. And what happens? But Tom Hanks kind of calls him over and grabs him and says to Ryan in a whispered tone, but with very sobriety, just very serious, he says, earn it. Earn it. Live a life worthy. Now, I wish he said, put it on display. Show that all of the sacrifice, that the salvation that you have received, show with your life what it meant. Show the transformation. And, and, and in essence, what's happening in the gospel, we are not living our lives out saying, earn it. Earn it. Sh show that you are deserving of it. No, that's not what's being said. What's being said in the text before us 
is let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Let it display the gospel. Let it show forth the reality that this has changed your life. This is not games. This is not fantasy. This is not fiction. This is the life-giving reality of the gospel breaking into your soul, making you new, changing you forever, and now you're living accordingly. You're living in step with the gospel. And so that's the title of the message. Living in step with the gospel. Putting on display the worth and excellency of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's right here. Look at verse 27. This is our text. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side, for the faith of the gospel. Did you hear that? Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Verse 28. And don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that you should not only believe, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul is issuing a battle cry to all Christians that this is how we're to live our lives. You remember the last time we were in Philippians, we said to live is Christ and to die gain. And there is nothing you can do to a Christian to unsettle them if their mind is focused on living for Christ. And even death itself is a gain. So there's no way to stop Christians. You can take their lives, but you'll usher them into glory. And now he's giving the blueprint for what it actually looks like fleshed out in your everyday life. What does it look like to live a life worthy of the gospel as a mom, or a dad, or a husband, or a wife, or a worker at the plant, or on the farm, or at the grocery store? What does it mean for you to put Jesus and his worth on display? To show forth by how you live that your Christianity is the real deal, and that the gospel is true. As you say with your life, this is legit, this is real. This gospel changed me. It transformed me. I was once lost, and now I have been saved. I've been rescued. And notice that there's this language here in our passage that's really helpful. It says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So this idea, only, it's giving you the impression that this is the main thing. If you want a focal point for your life, if you want something to be the driving force, do it with all excellent. Let this be above everything else in life. More important than anything else, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That is powerful. Now, the original Greek language 
actually gives this idea of be a citizen of the kingdom, living worthy for the gospel. It's this idea of citizenship where we get the word metropolitan or polis or city. It's this idea of, of the Philippians. Paul is telling the Philippians, hey, you guys are actually citizens of both Philippi, which is a Roman colony that come with all sorts of privileges, right? So they could not, they, they, they had Roman status, Roman privilege. Just like in America, we have certain privileges, freedoms, rights. But he's also saying, you're citizens of heaven. You are a citizen of a new city, a different city, a different kingdom. You're a part of the kingdom of Philippi, but I'm going to tell you what, you're a part of the kingdom of God. And look at verse uh, chapter 3 and verse 20, and you'll get the same idea and word usage. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to be subject all things to himself. So this is powerful when you think about it. So what he's saying, if I'm to paraphrase Paul, is he's saying, listen, you are an ambassador on a heavenly em embassy or outpost that's in this world, that's representing Jesus Christ. In all that you do, you represent Jesus. In every way that you live, you live your life for Christ. And so you're, you're basically like a sign to the world of the truthfulness of the gospel and the glory of who Jesus is. That's what he's about. That's what he's after. So what would our Christianity look like if we believe that? What would our Christianity taste like, smell like? What would the aroma, would we have the aroma of heaven about our life? I mean, there are some Christians that I've been around that love Jesus and they're so full of the Holy Spirit, so full of a love for Jesus and a love for the gospel that it is like being a, a little whiff of heaven when you're around them. And Paul's saying, I want that for you. I want you to live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And notice that, that he's saying that, um, knowing that he might come see them. So look at verse 27 again. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ or live as a citizen of the, the, the kingdom, worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that, here's the purpose, whether I come and see you are an absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. So what does it look like for us to actually do this? And that is where Paul gives us three ways that we put Jesus on display. There's three ways. We do it by standing together, striving together, and courageously living together. So standing, striving, and being courageous. And we're going to look at exactly what that looks like.
So if you've noticed, you could probably see in verse 27, we got two of those. Standing and striving. Look at verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So I want to focus on standing firm in one mind and one spirit. So that's what it looks like for the first display of actually living worthy. You're standing firm. This is like battle ready. You're standing your ground. You are not backing down. You're a soldier on the battlefield and you are not going to back down in the face of opposition, in the face of evil, in the face of of people who will seek to persecute or malign or make fun. Ultimately, you're standing your ground in the gospel and you're standing, notice it's together. You're standing together. What does it say but standing firm in one spirit and with one mind? So in um, ancient Rome, they had something that they had picked up from the Greeks called a phalanx. And this was like a military maneuver where you would have a a squad of a platoon of men standing together and they would bunch up so close together and they'd have shields that went from their feet all the way to their head, covered their whole body. And they would get in this maneuver where all the shields would come up and some of the guys would put the shields over their head and it would be like a human tank, impenetrable. And when fire from arrows came that were dipped in pitch and and shot into the phalanx, all of them would get deflected or stuck in the shield. So you had this like human tank moving and and they were able to defeat their enemies because they could get close enough without getting hurt themselves to do the the warfare that was required to win the battle. So they would get up, the phalanx was open and they would get somebody, get somebody, get somebody, phalanx back down and they're shielded, they're standing firm, they're not backing down, they're not running, there's no tuck tail and run. And God has called us to be like a spiritual tank as the church. He has called you to stand firm together. This isn't Lone Ranger Christianity that everybody's going to do everything on their own. No, we're united together. We stand together. We're strong together in the Lord. And he's saying stand having one mind and one spirit. And now what's interesting is this idea of having one spirit, you may think, well, is that talking about spirit in the sense of like just being together, like we're going to have one mind. It's another saying, way of saying that. I think actually it, it's the Holy Spirit. And I can get that from just a few verses later. If you look at chapter 2, verse 1, the same idea is here. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection, any sympathy, complete my joy by having the same mind and having the same love and being in full accord and of one mind. So notice that it's participating in the spirit leads to this standing in full accord of one mind. The Holy Spirit 
the very job of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian is to produce unity with other Christians who are not like you. Like we read in, in Revelation 5 that Jesus is creating a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now, when you get diff different ethnicities together, different people with different personalities, what happens? You get conflict. You get disunity because people have all sorts of different ways of doing stuff. And what the Spirit does in the midst of the church is produce unity. It's a Spirit-wrought unity that brings about a like-mindedness around the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we have a common Savior who was crucified on a Roman cross, dying in our place, bearing the wrath of God that we deserve to bear on ourselves, rescuing us out of the earthly city into the heavenly city, out of being citizens of purely this world to citizens of heaven. And Jesus did it by dying on a cross and raising up out of the grave. And that life of the Spirit is at work in you, brothers and sisters. And listen, when you get a hold of that truth, it begins to break down the walls and the barriers and the disunity in the church. And in this church, there was some disunity starting to happen among two women. We find in chapter 4. So Paul knows about it and he wants to address it and remind them. Chapter 4 and verse 2 says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of us and my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. He, he just threw, threw that in at the end, right? Your names are written in the book of life. Don't be divided. Don't have disunity. Your names are written in the book of life. You're laboring side by side with me, the Apostle Paul says. Agree together in the Lord. It's the Lord who brings us together. And it's the Holy Spirit who reminds us. And there is no greater enemy to the church beside the devil than disunity and division in its midst. In fact, the devil is called the accuser of the brethren. Because he gets in there and tries to sow discord. And so Paul is saying, hey, if you're going to stand firm, if you're going to stand fast, if you're going to stand like a spiritual tank, armored and ready to go into battle, shooting gospel missiles into the world to watch people get saved, you have to agree together in the Lord. You have to be of the like mind, same doctrine, same gospel realities breaking out of your heart. If you're not a regenerate believer and you're in a church, you're not going to be in touch with that. If you don't have the Spirit of God bearing witness in your soul that you're a child of God, you're not going to have those gospel realities in your heart. You're not going to have that shared vision. And Paul is after a shared vision of life that begins to live in the flavor of a standing against spiritual attack and opposition, strong of one mind and of one powerful spirit that brings us together. And that's the same spirit that will create in you a desire to live for the gospel, knowing that it's worth living for and it's worth dying for. It's the same spirit that Paul said, you Philippians are praying for me. And 
because of your praying for me in the spirit of Jesus, I'm being strengthened so that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that's how my life is going to be lived. That's powerful. And it's like an explosion. It's like a gospel grenade going off in a divisive situation and just raining down a unifying balm of God's grace and saying, you've been rescued by the same Savior, the same King, the same Lord, the same gospel. Unite in the Lord and go out linking arms to take the gospel into the world. Listen to Paul just powerfully express that once again in Philippians chapter 2. He's, he's, saying, he's trying to get them to encourage. He's saying, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, where does your encouragement come from? It's in Christ, verse 1. And any comfort, it's going to come from the love of God manifesting among his people as they believe the gospel. And any participation in the spirit, well, you need the spirit to live with affection and sympathy towards your brothers. And ultimately, in verse 3 of chapter 2, it says, Do nothing of rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. So what does that look like on the flip side, this unity? Well, it's preferring other Christians ahead of yourself. And only the gospel of the self-giving, loving, compassionate, sacrificial Savior can create that kind of a heart in you. And it's the heart he gives you when you believe. And it's a heart that needs to be constantly pleading before the throne of grace. Lord, fill me with your spirit so that I might love and prefer other Christians ahead of myself, not doing anything out of conceit, not doing anything out of selfishness, but doing it to bless my brothers and sisters. I've got, I've got my brothers and sisters good and their welfare on my heart. Just think about, like, that's a vision that we don't see in the world around us. The world wants to grab what it can from who it can and, and, and use people as an end or a means to an end. And Paul is saying, no, these brothers and sisters in Christ are to be cherished and let each of you not only look out to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Verse 5, have this mind among you, which was also yours, in, or which is yours in Christ Jesus. And what did he do? Well, he did, verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not count it equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being born in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of the death, even the death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So he's saying... The sacrificial reality of what Jesus did on the cross out of love for us is the very thing that is an emblem of the kind of humility 
and kind of togetherness that we ought to have toward one another. We lay ourselves down for one another. We partner together in the gospel. We stand together. And Jesus is exalted through his humiliation and his suffering and his laying down his life. And when you lay down your lives for your brothers and sisters, God lifts you up. Have you ever noticed that? When you actually lay your life down and you live for Christ and you live to bless your brothers and sisters, man, the Lord just strengthens you. You get joy. You get blessed. You get encouraged. And that's the kind of heart that he wants us to have. Display number two. We've seen the like-mindedness that we need to have. We need to be a people that resolve to deal with division quickly out of love and reconcile with our brothers and sisters. But display number two is striving together for the gospel. Look at verse 27 again. I want to hear that you're standing firm, he says, in one spirit with one mind, striving. Circle that word if you got a pencil. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now, this idea of striving is an athletic term. It's the same term that, that talks about this exertion of an athlete, and we get the word athlete from the actual Greek word. This idea of an athlete training, working hard, a marathon runner trying to prepare himself. There's a, there's a tenacious, sort of vibrant, hardworking activity. This striving, right, side by side, is something that we work at like we're going to the gym. And this is an idea that we strive with excellence to live in unity with our brothers and sisters to take the gospel to the world, to live linking arms to take the gospel to the world. We have a mission, and that mission requires a striving. I remember... Uh, in the 1920s, I think, an uh, Olympian named Eric Little, who was born um, in China to a, a missionary parents. And Eric was fast. I mean, he was just gifted and very fast runner. He um, was caught in kind of a dilemma as he turned into his you know, uh, late teens, early 20s, because he was such a fast runner, but he had a heart to go to China to be a missionary in China. And so he was caught between those two things. And he had a pivotal decision to make. How was he going to live his life? Was he going to live his life for the glory of Christ by running or by taking the gospel to China? And he has this kind of moment of soul searching as his, as his uh, sister asks him. He's like, why? You were made, you know, you, you're supposed to go to China. Why are you doing all this running? And he was so good that he made the Olympic team. And... He was going to get to compete with the greats. And he told his sister, and I just remember this moment, like he, 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 he tells his sister, um, and Chariots of the Fire is a movie that kind of recounts this whole scene, but he tells his sister, I was made for China, but the Lord also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. He had trained his whole life to be a missionary and also a runner. 
and God was glorified and Christ was exalted in both. And his activity and his exertion and his training was just as intense as reading and studying the Bible and, and preparing messages to preach the gospel as it was to actually train to be an Olympian. And so one day he actually gets to the Olympics and it comes down to a point of whether or not he's actually going to race because the race falls on a Sabbath day. And he believed with all his heart, like, I, I can't do work on the Sabbath. The Sabbath day is the Lord's. And so what he ends up doing is deciding that he's actually going to not race. And he incurred all sorts of scorn and all accusations. The newspapers had a heyday. And they're like, Eric Little is just you know, a fanatic and he doesn't, he doesn't know what he's talking about and he's throwing away the gold and he's going to embarrass America. Well, little did he know just a couple days later, not on the Sabbath, there was another race that was longer. It was a longer race. I think it was like 400 meters or something like that. Now he was a sprinter, so he wasn't really built for that kind of a race, but he was like, I want to do that race. And the fastest human on the planet, Harold Abrams, was actually running that race. And so Little goes to race, nobody thinks he's gonna win, and boom, he is like light speed. And he completely left everybody behind and wins that race that he didn't even train for. He was training for another race, but God gave him grace and victory to win that race. And that's the kind of athletic, tenacious, hard work and faith that God is calling us to be side by side with the laboring that Philippians did because they partnered with the Apostle Paul, because they cared about evangelism, because they cared about the gospel getting out, because they stood boldly in the face of opposition. They had an athlete's heart. And I just want to remind us, verse 27 says, we're striving side by side. This is a team sport. The gospel is a team sport. It's a partnership. That's why Paul talks about it that way. And so we're in this together. And that's why I'm, I'm excited for gospel to every home because what we're doing is we're partnering together to bring the gospel to the city. Bring the gospel to real homes with real people who are lost, fast-bound in sin, who need the quickening ray of the gospel to break into their hearts and open their eyes to the truth. And who knows, somebody could be listening right now online, hearing the gospel, or in this room, who hear the news that Jesus is Lord of all, that he died on a cross to set them free from their sins so that they might have life, that the quickening ray would shine in their hearts, and they would believe that Jesus is Lord. And as we herald that message with boldness in our heart, with a joy in our soul, with life-giving spiritual power, Paul said, I preach the gospel, and I'm about the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, but I preach it boldly. And I think that's the only way a church will see the world flipped upside down is when they are a part of a team exerting themselves like a trained Olympian 
just all in to bring the name to the nations so that one day we participate in that worship service we read about in Revelation 5, right? It's every tribe, tongue, and nation around the Lamb of God. Where do they come from? Because we preach. Where do they get created? Because a messenger was sent. Somebody was sent from Smithfield to go knock a door and talk about Jesus, and somebody got saved. That's the kind of thing that happens, and that's why there's a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, because God is sending his church out, striving side by side, not ashamed of the gospel. Jude, the Lord's brother, uses the same language in his letter. He says, Beloved, although... I was eager to write to you about your common salvation. I found it necessary to write to you appealing for you to contend for the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. So here's that idea, right? It's a striving. It's a contending. It's a battle. And we're in it together. It's, 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 it's combat. And so I want to encourage us on Wednesday... If you can't be a part of that, continue to pray for it. Continue to plead before the throne of grace that God may do a work in our midst, that God would strengthen us, that we would be a praying church and a proclaiming church. And that's how we lock arms. We give our time, our energy, our investment to get our hearts around this side-by-side -side ministry. Last display, display number three courageous together in the face of opposition look at verse 28 and this part just i just got fired up when i read this because I'm, I'm thinking of the apostle paul writing this from prison in verse 28 and he says philippians and he might as well be saying smithfield don't be frightened in anything by your opponents I want you to know that. Don't, don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. If you're going to share the gospel, if you've got a little reservation, don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you Saul, I had, and now hear that I still have. So here's what's happening. Paul is encouraging and inspiring the Philippian church to be a bold, courageous, fearless witness in the face of the opposition they're already seeing. The, the, the passage actually says they're already seeing it. Verse 30, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still had. You're in the conflict too. Paul got thrown into jail in Philippi, and he got thrown into jail at Rome. And the Philippians are actually experiencing that very same kind of persecution. They were actually fearing the loss of possessions, the loss of freedoms, and the loss of sometimes life itself. And if the gospel is true, I want you to think about this. If the gospel is true, if Jesus came to rescue sinners by dying on a cross and triumphing out of the grave, and he can give life to anybody who believes, 
then it does not matter if you lose your possessions for the sake of the gospel, if you lose your freedoms for the sake of the gospel, if you lose your life itself, because glory is what's in store for God's people, because treasure, that's so much better. Notice the way Paul talks in um, chapter 3 and verse 7 and 8, and just, I hope this ignites a little something in your soul. He says, but whatever I gain, or whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain what? Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by all means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You can't destroy Christianity by killing Christians, by taking their freedoms, or by taking their stuff. It's unstoppable when you get a whiff of that. Because no matter what happens to you, if you're faithful for Christ, there are better things. There's far surpassing glory that awaits us as Christians. There's heavenly dwellings. We're citizens of heaven. We're pilgrims passing through. This is not our home. We're holding on sometimes like this is our home. And we get something taken from us. We get a little freedom taken from us. We get a little suffering coming into our life and we're all upset. It's like Christians shouldn't have that kind of thing. But look at verse 29. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, it's for his sake that you should not only believe, but also suffer for his sake. So the idea there is that it's been granted that God has designed, and we spent a whole sermon talking about God's design for our good and his glory for our suffering and our trials. God has designed not only that we would believe and grant the grace to believe, but also to suffer for his sake. I mean, so what's happening there is... Paul is saying, if every earthly pleasure this world had to offer was taken from you, Christ would still be enough and still far better, surpassing anything that you lose. Your body gets harmed, you're getting a new body in heaven. Your stuff is taken, I've, the meek shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Your life is taken, I'll raise it up again. That's what Jesus does for his people so that in the face of adversity and opponents and people who actually want to do them harm, they have a boldness. And Paul could say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And there's a fearless boldness in how they live. I actually think of 
C.S. Lewis in his Chronicles of Narnia, he spoke of death this way. He said, what happened at the cross, ultimately, when Jesus died, he took the sins of the world on himself, but then he died and three days was buried. And ultimately, when he came out of the tomb, Lewis speaks of it like death began to work backwards. So if death itself comes to us, Christian, if death is tasted in our family, as a believe, family of believers, please know that Jesus is working death backwards. To live is Christ, to die is gain. The faith that we have is real, worth standing for, worth striving for, and worth courageously facing opposition. And you know what happens in the hearts of people who hear this kind of message and this gospel? It's a sign to them. The text says in verse 28, the sign is clear to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. So as you're persecuted by people in the world and people are put to death for the name of Jesus, and Paul would be beheaded in Rome, it's like a sign that one day God will judge. One day God will bring judgment to bear on people. And it's also a sign of the salvation and the truthfulness of Christianity because Jesus promised this kind of life. Jesus promised that adversaries would come, that difficulties would come, tribulations would come, and even persecution unto death. But it would be a powerful impact in the world. And even the death of some of the most precious saints would work a glorious good in the world around them. And Paul's death ignited a whole wave of missions that won over all of Rome. I remember uh, hearing a story about Ronnie Lott, who was a, uh, a football player. And he was just a tough dude. I think he used to train like pain tolerance and pain threshold and he would have people like hitting him with sticks to kind of you know get this body into shape and he just trained and trained and 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 and, and just didn't want to be affected and phased by the stuff that got thrown at him in the world of, of football and what happened was he was announcing uh, a game after his career was over and it was evenly matched teams. And he's like, who's going to win this game? Um, somebody asked him, you know, Ronnie, who do you think is going to win? And he's like, that's easy. It's the person, the first team that delivers the woo hit. And everybody knows that hit because it's that play that's so brutal, so severe that everybody goes, ooh, <laughs> you know, and they're like, uh-oh. That was an intense hit. And all of a sudden, the momentum of the team shifts. And that team that delivered the woo hit on the other team begins to, to, to dominate. And that's what happens when Christians are persecuted for the name of Christ and they live boldly. What happens is it's like a woo hit. It's like a sign to the world that you can't destroy Christianity. It's true. And it's the life-giving reality of Christ bearing witness to the world that you can kill his people, but he'll raise them up again. And the gospel will spread and you can't pin it down. It's the glory of this passage. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So whether I come and see you or am absent, Paul says, I want to hear that you're standing firm, one spirit, one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. 
and not frightened in anything. I want you to be courageous. And this will be a sign to the world that persecutes of their ultimate destruction and judgment, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now here that I still have. Now, just to kind of reel this in a little bit as we're thinking about living a life worthy of the gospel, we talked about Eric Little. And he gave his life as a runner in the Olympics, but he did go to China. After he won that gold medal, he began to preach around the world and he used that as a platform to bring the gospel, but then he made true his promise to God. He, he said, I was meant for China. And so he labored many years in China as a missionary, bringing the gospel, teaching English, teaching um, the very message that he had trained his whole life to bring to a people because he had such a love for the Chinese. And he endured all sorts of accusations, being maligned, all sorts of people saying, you shouldn't have went to the Olympics. And then at the Olympics, you're going to just give up the gold medal. And then he got the gold medal, just a different event. And in China, he would spend himself just serving the people, loving the people, partnering with missionaries to get the gospel to China. And there'd be a war that broke out during that time. And what would happen is Eric Little would be caught in a war between China and Japan and the Japanese forces that invaded this little town that he was serving in captured him and took him to a Japanese prison camp or intermittent camp for refugees basically from the war with poor living conditions and he suffered. He developed a brain tumor, but he kept bringing the gospel. He kept being a faithful witness and he ultimately would give his life in that camp and die. And some would say a man with so much talent a man with so much potential. I mean, surely he could, have, he could have been preaching all sorts of places and using his Olympic medal to go all around the world. And couldn't he have made a bigger impact? But the story of Eric Little is being told today all around the world. They made a movie about it because what he did is he stood for the gospel even when it cost him, even when he was maligned and attacked even when it meant that he would be in danger and his life would be threatened and he had real opponents who didn't want him to bring the gospel. And the Chinese government was also hostile to Christianity at that time, and so was the Japanese government. And so he's in prison and ultimately dies there as a witness to the realities of this message because he gave his only, he gave his life and he laid it down and he lived it showing and displaying the worth of Jesus Christ to the world around him. Every chance he got, he didn't shrink back from declaring the gospel. That Jesus is the reason for his life. That Jesus could save sinners. That Jesus could rescue people who were deep in sin, caught in sin, fast bound in shackles, chains. And that he could set them free. Eric Little believed that, 
And he also believed that he would rise again. And he would say as his last words, something to the effect of suffering faithfully for Christ. That he would be faithful, that he would endure for the name. And that's the very idea we see here. This idea of standing firm, striving side by side, and not being frightened when you are threatened for the sake of the gospel. And perhaps, brothers and sisters, we're going to come into times where we actually have to stand. And maybe it'll be unpleasant to be a Christian. Five years from now, ten years from now, who knows what will happen. But ultimately, if we have this kind of courage to live as Christ, to die as gain, and we want to live a life worthy of the gospel, may God strengthen us to be those kind of spiritual Olympians, training ourselves, partnering together, standing together for the gospel to take the name of Jesus to a needy world and watch it begin to rescue people one by one. So at the end, every tribe, tongue, and nation is represented there. And there are some who have believed on the lamb who was slain and whose blood was spilt to rescue and ransom a people. And what a glorious song it will be, a song that was displayed in the lives of his people while they lived and while they died so that they might glorify and display the worth of Christ to a world that's watching. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for reminders. Lord, we need the, the content of the book of Philippians to remind us to stand firm together to strive together side by side in the gospel and to be a people courageous, unafraid, unabashed, saying with Paul to live as Christ and to die as gain, saying with Paul, I will not be ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe and who live in such a way that Jesus is on display and made much of and that there's no other explanation for our lives, but that Jesus, in fact, is the King of Kings who died for sinners and rose out of the grave and changed the world and changed history and changed us as a people and united us around this gospel so that we could be a people displaying the worth and glory of Christ, the crucified Savior. Would you breathe encouragement and strength on your people as we spend this time considering once again these precious realities? In Jesus' name, amen.